If you decide you're going to be a victim of your circumstance, you will become those circumstances. Welcome to Act in Line, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Eric Cohn, executive producer. Bill Courtney, a native of Memphis, is the host of the podcast An Army of Normal Folks, launched in 2023 on the belief that if each of us just does what we can in our own communities, we can change the country. A successful business owner, Bill founded Classic American Hardwoods, Inc. in 2001. He continues to operate the company, which today employs 140 people with a 45-acre manufacturing facility and domestic sales offices in Memphis, Tennessee, and international sales offices in Shanghai, China, and Ho Chi Minh City, Vietnam. In 2003, Bill began volunteering as a football coach at Memphis's inner-city Manassas High School in an effort to turn around its underperforming football team. A few years later, the Tigers went 18-2 over two seasons that were chronicled in the documentary film Undefeated, which won the 2012 Academy Award for Best Feature-Length Documentary. He is the author of Against the Grain, a coach's wisdom on character, faith, family, and love, released in 2014, and is a national speaker on topics of leadership, character, and business. Bill is a graduate of the University of Mississippi, and he and his wife, Lisa, have four children and reside in Memphis. You can find additional resources in the show notes for this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Acton Line on our website at acton.org slash actonline. And if you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Act in Line is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. The scene is inner city Memphis, Tennessee in the early 2000s, at Manassas High School, in one of the poorest areas of Memphis. It's the third poorest zip code in America. The young men who attend Manassas High School are three times more likely to be dead or in jail than to have a job or be in college by their 21st birthday. When Coach Bill Courtney arrived on the sidelines for the football program in 2003, the Manassas Tigers had won only four of their previous 99 football games. In their 110-year school history, they had never won a single playoff game. By 2008, Courtney had helped build a winning football program. Over the course of two seasons in 2008 and 2009, the team went 18-2 and and had grown to a roster of over 75 players from 19 when he started. But Courtney wasn't just changing the outcomes on the football field. He was changing lives. In his last two seasons at Manassas, 31 out of the 32 seniors on his football team went to college. The story of Coach Courtney and the Manassas Tigers was chronicled in the documentary film Undefeated, which took home the Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature-Length Film in 2012. Today, Bill Courtney is coaching a different kind of team, an army, an army of normal folks, to be exact. He's the host of a podcast and a leader of a movement, highlighting the stories of everyday people doing extraordinary things and bringing together Americans of all stripes committed to doing what we can to bridge our country's divides and to change our local communities in order to change the country for the better. Today, I talk with Bill Courtney about his life, his career as a coach, and his new project, An Army of Normal Folks. Bill Courtney, welcome to Acton Line. Thanks for having me. So, Bill, we want to get to the podcast that you're now hosting, An Army of Normal Folks, and uh, certainly want to get to the story of your high school football coaching experience. But let's start at the beginning. Tell me about your life leading up to becoming uh, an an entrepreneur before uh, getting into coaching football. Okay. Um, Born and raised in Memphis. Um, Went to Ole Miss, uh, which is uh, about an hour south of Memphis. Um, Way I grew up is... um, and really 
it's it's germane to my my coaching is uh my dad left home when i was four and i had absolutely he actually died earlier this year and i got a phone call after the fact and was just told i had really no relationship with him mom was married and divorced five times um fourth daddy shot at me down a hallway one night and i had to dive out of window to save myself and so uh you know mom loved me and did the best she could and uh but we didn't have a lot and so i kind of i kind of grew up uh with a little bit of uh dysfunction surrounding me i guess you would say and um the men in my life who uh, i had two good grandfathers who cared for me but the men in my life who really mentored me and uh, meant something to me were my coaches uh in high school and so when i graduated from Ole miss i um i was uh i wanted to get my doctorate in developmental psychology and i took a job teaching school and coaching football with the plan of going to school in the evenings um and i saw teaching and coaching as much as uh, it was a job but it also was a mission um and i got married started having kids uh we had four kids in four years and seventeen thousand dollars a year as a coach didn't get it done and so i uh had to get out of coaching for for a profession i continued to do it though in a non-faculty positions as it remained my passion and uh got into the private world and started a lumber company and so um that's that's kind of the elevator pitch of uh, from when I was born up until about 25 years old. Tell me more about uh, getting involved with this lumber, starting this lumber company. What what drove you to, you know, if you're looking to, it, it, let me say it this way. The normal thing that I think most people would do if they're looking in that situation, right? They're, uh, you know, you've got kids now to take care of, you know, looking to earn some income. Most people go out there job seeking, not looking to start their <laughs> own business. Um, it is, it is a certain kind of individual who feels driven to that kind of a life. Um, what drove you to it? What brought you to this idea of like, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go out there and look for employment with someone else. I want, I want to start and do my own thing. Well, you got to have a little bit of a screw loose um, to actually think that you can pull something like that off. And and really, it was this. Um, our kids were two, three, four, and five. Now, just first of all, imagine that chaos, right? My my, and, my brother-in-law has, uh, he has five now under six. Okay, um, so I, go visit crazy. that house and you see just the, the, the chaos <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. He is nuts, and his wife deserves whatever can be afforded the woman because yes. um, she is a saint walking on the face of the planet, much like Lisa, my wife, was. Um, so it, it was about money. I mean, candidly, getting out of coat, I, I, you know, diapers and formula and insurance and everything. And so I took a job uh, selling fleets of vehicles to companies, um, and I sold these trucks to a guy who owned a lumber business, and he said, you don't really remind me of a guy who's in the car business, and I'm like, well, when I gave him a little bit of background, and he said, I think you'd make a great lumber salesman. Do you, you want to come sell lumber? And my question was, how much does it pay? And it was more, and so I got when I was 26 years old, you know, I'm, I'm figuring it out with all these kids and bills and went to work selling lumber because the man paid more. And, and what I found was a family run operation that was three generations old, was doing about 25 million a year in sales. And five years later, I was 31. I was the vice president of the company and we'd grown his sales to uh, almost a hundred million. And at 31, and now five years of this experience in this industry and and the growth, you know, you start having ideas of ways you could do things differently and interesting ideas you have about uh, different products you could create and um, 
and the other thing is, frankly, at 31, when you see a family run three generation operation and you see kids of the owner starting going to college, you you start worrying about nepotism a little bit. You don't want to be that guy that's 42 years old that's giving your professional career to a company and you start finding yourself passed over and hitting a ceiling. And, um, and so, you know, I, I, I wanted to buy in, I wanted a little bit of ownership in the company. I wanted something that protected me and that wasn't available. And so I went to Lisa and you got to understand something else is I was making really good money at this time. And I told you briefly how I came up. We just bought a 3,800 square foot house in a suburb of, of Memphis called Carrieville. All four of my kids had their own bedroom. They're going to a great school. We had a couple of nice cars. I mean, coming from where I came from, I'd arrived. I'd gotten to a, you know, I never had a yard growing up. We lived in apartments. I had this big, pretty yard and this gorgeous neighborhood and everything else. And, and you get to a place where you start trying to protect what you have. And, and there's a lot of trepidation and, and considering risking something you never thought when you were a kid, you would even ever have. And I went to Lisa and I said, you know, here are the dangers I think of staying or the possible dangers of staying. But here are the other dangers. If I leave and try to start a business, this is a heavily asset laden business and it requires a lot of people and it's going to require a lot of money. And we had $17,000 in the bank and I'm going to have to go raise money. I'm going to have to get investors. And I want you to know, babe, that if we go do this and I fail, we will be completely broke. We will lose all of this and we will have to move to somewhere that I would have to start over in my thirties. And I can't guarantee. And Lisa looked at me and said, you know, when I married you, you were flat broke and we can be flat broke again. And if this is what you think you want to do, and this is what we need to do, then I got your back. Go for it. And I will tell you, anybody interested in starting an organization or making a change, you, you, you better have full buy-in from your significant other. Um, and to Lisa's credit with a two-year-old, a three-year-old, a four-year-old, and a five-year-old, and um, having just bought what we thought was going to be our dream home, she was willing to risk it all um, to support me. Um, and she did. And so with that level of confidence, um, I quit this job that I was making a bunch of money. The company had a private jet. I was, you know, I mean, it was, I was, I was living a life I never thought I'd be able to live, but I wanted, I wanted to try a different avenue. And so we did and literally started my business out of a room in my house and um, very tenuous, very risky. And um, we, we went after it because uh, I had someone willing to stand with me and support my dream. What did you learn in the process of becoming an entrepreneur and a business owner? And what did you learn about yourself through that process? That I'm not nearly as smart as I thought I was. <laughs> Uh, we we swung the doors open on uh, September 1st of 2001. I had hawked everything. I had raised all the money that I could raise. I'd done everything I knew to do. I was dragging old equipment out from behind furniture plants in North Carolina that I was paying $1,000 for and bringing back to Memphis and spending weekends putting it together and hoping it could run. And had exhausted everything and we had to turn cash immediately and 10 days after opening the door was 9-11 and um i really didn't think we'd make it through that and i do not want to make it sound like 9-11 was nearly as traumatic for me as it was for the people in new york and dc and pennsylvania and those families and those people but the fact is the world kind of shut down and I'm barely got enough money to operate. And 
what I found out about myself was that, um, well, what I found out about starting anything is there's a lot of, there's a lot of luck involved. Uh, timing is everything. Um, and the other thing I learned about myself quickly was that if I was ever going to grow an organization that was ever going to matter, I was going to have to surround myself with committed, like-minded people who had, uh, disciplines, abilities, um, and intellect that was, uh, beyond mine in different areas of a business. And so what I found out quickly is that, um, if I could find people who were really, really good at certain jobs and create a team of people who um, I knew a little bit about everything, but had experts in their fields around specific parts of my business and could could bring together a team of people who could be experts in each of their individual areas and that I could uh, pull those folks together and and try to keep everybody towing in the same direction that we'd have a chance. You mentioned earlier how important your coaches were as father figures as role models for you. Um, talk to me about your experience learning to play sports and the impact that those coaches had on you and your life and your development. We don't have 10 hours because I would love to mention to you all about Zach Street and Ray Condor and, uh, oh, I mean, the list goes on. I'll tell you one story that I think is a good microcosm of all of it. Uh, I lettered in six sports in high school, um, which is ridiculous in and of itself, but it, it was my skate. And so I played everything that was available that I could muster. And so I had a lot of coaches and a lot of great experiences. Um, my freshman year in high school, I got in a fight and, uh, Back then, you didn't go to the principal's office when you got in trouble. If you were an athlete, you went to the coach's office. And trust me, going to the coach's office was 50 times worse than the principal's office. And I knew that I was just about to get lit up for acting like a jackass. And um, Coach Spain was this guy from Milan, Tennessee. I'm, I'm pretty sure his father was a cotton farmer, but old school, blue collared, grizzly guy. Um, yes or no, sir. Very matter of fact, great football coach, tactician wise, but a great man. And beneath all of that, he had a true, a, a, a genuine concern for the kids he coached. And so when I sat down in his office, he asked me why I got in a fight. And I told him, coach, I, I, I'm just so angry all the time. And he said, well, nobody can blame you for that. Billy, I was Billy back then. He said, you know, you, you, you've got, you got a lot of dysfunction in your life. And he said, I, I know what's going on behind the scenes with you and nobody can really blame you for being angry for all the dysfunction and trauma and everything else you deal with. And he said, but you're old enough now you got a choice to make. And he said, the choice is this one, you can be, um, you can be a victim of all of it. And he said, if you choose to be a victim of all of it, nobody can really blame you because you're going through a lot. But what's going to happen is you're going to grow up and you're going to be 25 or 30 and you're going to be exactly like the people that are making you so angry right now. You're if you if you decide you're going to be a victim of your circumstance, you will become those circumstances. And he said, or you can decide to dig your heels in right now and be a rock that other people break themselves on. So it's your choice, but you need to make the choice because if you continue to be a victim of your circumstances, you're going to continue getting fights. You continue to stay angry and your life's going to unravel and you're going to be the very thing that you hate right now, or you can make the choice and you could denounce that and you can be a rock that that, that that world breaks itself on and choose a different path. And it wasn't like, I mean, I was in ninth grade, so I can't say it was an epiphany that that very moment 
I changed my life because of that conversation. But I will tell you, it weighed on me throughout the year. And I did start changing as a result of that conversation, that mentorship and that love and that understanding of my circumstance that he showed me. And then the, the option that he gave me, he didn't save my life, but he showed me a different way. And, um, and I'll never forget that conversation. And I've always taken that through my life. I'm 55 years old right now, and I still get goosebumps when I even tell the story because I remember Coach Spain loving me enough to call me on my victimhood and show me and give me an example of a different way to live. And that's what good mentors and coaches can do when they take time to understand the folks that they seek to lead and then serve them. And that's what he and all of my other coaches did for me. You lettered in six sports. How important was sports and athletics to you in your life? And what was the influence that participating at being a part of, of teams, especially, you know, we're going to return to football. Um, what, what did that, what consequence did that have on you? What did you learn through the process of being, being an athlete, becoming a better athlete and being a part of a team? A number of things. Uh, one of my favorites is there's a difference in being hurt and being injured. If you're injured, go to the hospital. If you're hurt, get up. Um, everybody's hurt. Everybody deals with trauma. Everybody deals with stub toes. Everybody deals with black eyes and chipped teeth. Those are not things that stop you. Those are not injuries. Those are being hurt. Metaphorically, in business, everybody gets hurt. In family and in relationships, everybody gets hurt. If you're injured and you can't move your body, get a doctor to fix you up. But don't be a victim of small circumstances that hurt you. Rise above it. Um, lots of things that make us stop are not injuries that should make us stop. They're, they're things that we allow uh, allow to stop us when they shouldn't. And then I would say it you, you get you've got to submit yourself and allow yourself to be coached and talk. You've get you've got to submit to a when you're on a team, it's not about you, it's about us. And so you've got to submit to the will of the us and make sure the us is more important than the I. Um and then probably lastly, with regard to all of that is um there is no finish line in 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 track whatever race you're running whether it's a 100 yard dash or a marathon there is a tape that when you cross that tape you stop and then you you take a, an account of what place you finished well in in the marathon of life as it pertains to family and children and work and the work that you do in society, there is no tape. There is no finish line. You're never in first and you're never in last place. You're just always still in the race. And as long as you're willing to constantly compete and understand there is no finish line, then you're, you're, you're never out of the game. You're never out of the race. Now, correct me if I have uh, don't have the timeline right here. So you had been... Uh, a coach and a teacher, you leave, uh, become a lumber salesman, you start this business. Tell me about how you end up back coaching again. What brings you to Manassas High School in Memphis? All right. Well, I never quit coaching. So in the state of Tennessee, the TWSAA, which is the governing body of athletics in the state of Tennessee, allows you to be what's called a certified non-faculty coach if you go to nashville and you take all these tests and get this accreditation and it's everything from first aid to best practices and if you pass all these tests and you get this accreditation you can be a certified non-faculty coach and what that means is you know a lot of teams have dads helping or whatever i didn't want to be that i want to be a coach i want to be a full-fledged coach and and 
So if you go through all this accreditation, you can be a a fully vetted, approved coach and coach just like any other guy does or coach does, but you can do it as without having to be on faculty. And so I did that. And so I continued to coach because again, that was my passion. Well, when I started my business, I thought, well, I'm going to step away because I bought the, you know, when you start a business, especially in manufacturing, you got to have industrial property and I didn't have much money. So I bought the cheapest industrial property you could find in the Memphis area. And it was in this area of North Memphis, very dilapidated, very poor. And that's why I started my business. Well, Manassas um, happened to be about a mile away. And the opportunity came up to coach at Manassas. And candidly, I went there because it was convenient, because I could run my business, start my business, because the proximity of the school to my facility was close. And it enabled me to be able to have the time to be able to do it. And so a buddy of mine who is a fraternity brother who works for me, still works for me today as a, as a sales guy, who was a sales guy back then. His Sunday school class was doing some volunteer work in inner city schools across the city. And he went to Manassas to, to do some volunteer work. And while there, he found that their struggling football team needed some coaching help. And he told them about me and a couple of people there had known about me because I'd coached around. And uh, they asked me to come over and help out for spring practice, which was supposed to be two weeks. And that turned into seven years. So when you arrive at Manassas High School, uh, this is a team with 19 players and over 10 years, they'd been, the record was four and 95. So you, yeah, you're, not, bad. you're not, in, <laughs> you're not inheriting uh, a juggernaut here, a, um, uh, a team hey. that is tearing it up. So what, you you arrive there now, so you have this, and and fill in also the context of you know you mentioned you know being in this uh, you know dilapidated area of town, uh, probably an underperforming high school academically as well. A lot of kids from troubled backgrounds, which I imagine something you'd be able to uh, identify with. Um, set the scene for me when you arrive at Manassas. These nineteen players who have you know, again, you know, they're in high school, so you only have a max of about four years of experience there of any of those seasons. But for any of them, not a lot of winning, not a lot of uh, probably positive experiences that they've had on a football field. What is what is the scene when you arrive at Manassas and what do you do next? Not only not a win lot of winning on the football field, but not a lot of winning in life. Um it's the uh, fourth or fifth poor zip code in the United States. Um, fewer than 40 people, 40% 40 of the people who live in that area have an operating vehicle. Less than 1.3% have a bachelor's degree. Under 60% are high school graduates. I think it's like 83% of the people from that area named the grandmother as the head of the household. Um, an 18 year old male is three times more likely to be incarcerated or dead by his 21st birthday than he is to have a job. It is abject poverty, abject disenfranchisement. Um, and so when you hear that movies and TV shows and the news, frankly, that likes to sensationalize areas like these, you, you think, you know, what you're going to get when you walk into that in terms of the kids. What I found was, despite those demographics, a very old school, which has now been replaced by a newer school, but at that time, a very old school, the hallways were clean, the kids were dressed well, it was yes sir, no sir, um, the administration didn't put up with a bunch of crap in the hallways, it was, a, it was given all of the circumstances that the administration teachers dealt with, and the poverty and everything else, um, and and all of the inherent difficulties it is to be able to actually teach in a healthy learning environment when kids are just trying to figure out how to get a meal most days. Um, it was a well-run place. And when I got to practice, I found a lot of, I, it was 100% black. 
and a lot of kids with tattoos and, and all of that. And what I expected from the sensationalized versions we have uh, grown accustomed to was not what I found. What I found was kids, yes or no sir kids, who were desperate to be part of something positive and who despite all of the circumstances that are lives showed up every day to practice wanting to get to better. And I'm telling you, I fell in love because the human spirit, you know, the ratio of success in our young people's lives in this country should not be determined by the zip code at the time of their birth. But the fact is in many circumstances, it is. But these kids proved to me that they were no different than any kids I coached in the suburbs or coached in the rural areas or coached in the county or coached in Oxford, Mississippi. They were just kids. They're 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old kids that just wanted to be part of a, a good learning experience and, and try to win at something. And that's what I fell in love with. Um, I also found some freaky athletes who had just never been coached well and frankly, never been given a level playing field and an opportunity to excel. And that excited me, the opportunity to take this, this amazing potential and work with it. Um, and it changed me because it, it changed my view of our country and many of the people in it who live in different circumstances than my own children grew up in. And um, it made me want to fight so hard uh, to create an atmosphere of learning and discipline and accountability and effort that, that these kids, despite where they're come from and despite their previous 10 years record, they too could excel and exceed with the proper instruction, proper accountability, and a level playing field. And so we went to work. So again, four and 95 over 10 years. And before you arrive, uh, had never won a playoff game in 110 year school history. Tell me how you go from that to in uh, 2008 and 2009, an 18 and two record. Um, well, <laughs> uh, you know, we went from 19 kids to 75 kids and we, we went from the losses you're talking about to our last two years, 18 wins and two losses. And here's how you do it. Um, you coach good football, you coach X's and O's, you have to, you have to coach good football. Um, but you also coach all the tenants that are in my book against the grain. You coach character, discipline, integrity, perseverance, grace, forgiveness. You coach the dignity of hard work. You coach teamwork. You coach leadership. You coach basic fundamentals and tenets that are going to serve, serve you well after the days of playing are over. And you walk those fundamentals and tenets. And the way you interact with the kids. So not only do you talk them, you illustrate them and you hold kids accountable to those tenants and you create a culture where um, certain expectations about the way you carry yourself, you will be held accountable to. And you also level the playing field. You, you go out and raise money and you give the kids the, the same top-notch equipment that their opponents have. You give them the same level of instruction by bringing in good coaches who also believe in those fundamentals but can also coach the game. And you simply take a group of kids from an area who have never had a level playing field and you level it and you, you coach valuable fundamentals and tenets and you coach X's and O's, and you stay consistent, and word gets around. And kids come out of the hallways because they want to be part of a positive experience. And kids coming up from eighth grade to ninth grade, instead of going to all the other schools in the county, they start hearing about the cool things going on in Manassas, and they start coming. And so over the course of seven years, you know, 
kids started showing up because people want to be part of something positive. We grew our numbers. We, we grew our culture. And as a result, we grew our, our team and our wins. In 2012, a documentary film called Undefeated wins the Academy Award for Best Feature Length Documentary. This is a documentary on your Manassas High School football team. Uh, what was that experience like? <laughs> that was weird. Um, our last year, uh, we had going into my last year there, uh, we had a number of kids getting recruited, which never happened at Manassas. And we were winning ball games, and these guys in LA found out about it and they showed up and um decided they wanted to film our last season and make a movie. And and I'm telling you, dude. You know, if someone showed up at your world and said, hey, we're going to make a documentary about you and make a movie, you know, we thought we might see this thing on Wednesday night at two in the morning on Channel 364 one day. I mean, you know, and another thing is don't imagine boom trucks and satellites and all kinds of all kind this big production. This was a two hundred and fifty thousand dollar production, which was three guys and two cameras following us around for a year. This was not a big deal, and we thought it was going to be nothing. And they go back to L.A. at the end of the season with 550 hours of film, and they edit up a two-hour movie, and a year later, Lisa, my wife, and I are walking down the red carpet at the Academy Awards with George Clooney and P. Diddy. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> it's amazing. Before we get to the podcast and what you're doing now. Uh, you mentioned your book, Against the Grain, A Coach's Wisdom on Character, Faith, Family, and Love. Talk to me about the second item that you list there. Talk to me about your faith and the impact that that has had on the journey of your life and um, the, the decisions you've made. You know, uh, what, you here at the Acton Institute, we understand the importance of faith and virtue in all aspects of the world. One of our taglines is connecting good intentions with sound economics, um, that values and faith-based, faith-informed operation in the world being so important. Um, talk to me about uh, the importance of your faith and how it has influenced the course that your life has taken. Okay. Uh, two things. But first, before those two things, you're about to get a long-winded answer. I'll go as quickly as I can. After the Academy Awards, we were told by a guy named David Glasser, who actually is the producer of uh, Yellowstone now. Everybody knows Yellowstone. Well, back then, he was uh, a bigwig with Weinstein, who ended up buying the, uh, the film and ushered it through the Oscars and into the public eye. Um, he looked at me and said, you know, your world's never going to be the same. Your life's changed. And Lisa and I were like, whatever. I mean, we're from Memphis, right? I'm a guy who, I'm a, I'm a Memphis guy. I'm a football coach. I own a lumber company. You know, this came up. We never looked for it. I really thought I'd had my 20 minutes of fame. And it turns out it was more than that. And David was absolutely correct. My life had changed. And Lisa and I kind of really talked about it. And she was like, look. If if you if if all these people want speeches and all this stuff that everybody wants and these appearances on shows and being on TV shows and having a TV show and writing a book, all of that's fine. But you know, the rules are don't forget who you came from, don't forget where you came from, don't forget who you are. And uh if you can use this platform to Talk about and engage in things that can have some positive effect, then fine. But we're not going to do stuff just for the fame or the money or whatever. And so that was kind of the guiding principle set down by my wife, Lisa, who, by the way, I'm scared to death of and I do everything she says. So that's the way it was. And um, so I started doing these keynote speeches all over the place and, you know, Google and Nike and you know, for goodness sakes, the Olympics and, you know, uh, hundreds of them. And I continue to do them. Um, 
and but early on, all the things I w- were talking about in my speeches, uh, my agent and people were like, you know, this needs to be in a book. And so I wrote this book called Against the Grain, which is chock full of all the stuff I talk about in the speeches, which is largely what I learned from my coaches that we mentioned earlier and my mentors and um, in business and in my family and coaching football. And, and so that went great and continues to do well and more speeches. And, um, the root of it all is, I don't think we engage in our communities because it's a nice thing to do. Rather, I think it's a requirement of the blessings we've been given. Um, if if the Lord has decided to bless your life with riches that you don't even understand and certainly don't deserve and um, gives you, uh, through those blessings, an opportunity to have some measure of positive effect in your community, and you don't take that opportunity to do something in your community, I think you're a pretty big hypocrite. Um, I was... I was in uh on the coast, the Gulf Coast. I was in Florida um some years ago. Lisa loved we we like to have shrimp boils where you put shrimp and sausage and corn and potatoes in a big pot with some Cajun seasoning and boil it up. That's a big thing in our family. And I was coming back from the coast and Lisa told me to go to the docks and get some fresh shrimp right off the boats. And again, like I told you, I do as I'm told. So I went down to the docks, and when I got there, I don't know if you've ever been to fishing docks before, but they stink. They reek. And when I say they reek, they are really disgusting. I mean, if you're not, you when you leave, you can smell the stench on your clothes. There's fish heads and guts, and it's stagnant water, and it's hot. It's just nasty. And I'm sitting there kind of holding my nose, waiting for the shrimp boats to come in to get my, my shrimp. I went to Walmart, picked up a cooler and some ice, and was ready to go, and just couldn't wait really to get my shrimp and get the heck out of there because it's putrid. And then the boat showed up with the shrimp. I'm like, good, I'm going to get these shrimp and get out of here. And I found the only thing more revolting than the docks were the fishermen themselves. I mean, they're out, they're, they're, they're out on those boats before the sun comes up. Uh, toothpaste and deodorant is more of a suggestion than a requirement for their personal hygiene. They're smoking two packs of marble reds. They got the sweat and the sulfur hitting them all day. And when those guys come in, you know, they're fairly um, revolting human beings in a fairly revolting place. And uh, it didn't matter because I'm getting my shrimp and um, I load up the shrimp and head back to Memphis and Jackson, Mississippi is about halfway back. And I was on the way back and thinking about the afternoon at the docks and it dawned on me that those putrid stinky kind of disgusting fishermen are the exact people that Christ surrounded himself when he was on earth. That's who he surrounded himself with. And I, I couldn't help, but be overcome with the realization that if Christ came to earth today, he wouldn't show up in neighborhoods like mine. He wouldn't show up in in the nice ballrooms that I speak in with all the people in their nice suits driving their nice cars to work. He wouldn't he wouldn't show up to this Hollywood area that my world kind of somehow got into. He surrounded himself with the most unfortunate in life, the stinky fishermen ladies of ill repute, and he washed their feet and he served them. And if we're called as Christians to be Christ-like, what better way to be Christ-like once we're blessed with riches we don't reserve to place ourselves in the very positions Christ placed himself in, which are among the most needy on earth. So how does my faith affect the way that I interact in the world? that very way. I think ultimately we are called to be Christ-like. And I think the narrative of a Christian that is think like me or you're going to hell has been uh, a really destructive narrative 
from our faith. Uh, if you're sitting on the fence, that is not likely to bring you into our camp. However, if you act Christ-like and you serve and you find this area of needs and fill it, um, you don't have to say a word. You just live a life that illustrates and narrates what being a Christian looks like. And I think that can bring a number of people into that camp. So um, how has the whole experience interacted with my faith? It's that my faith is that God is forgiving, God is graceful, and God is serving. And his love is infinite. And if we're called to be Christ-like, I think we're called to have that same kind of infinite love and desire to serve the most needy among us. Tell me about your podcast, An Army of Normal Folks. It's an extension of that. Um, so I do a lot of interviews, and this guy named Alex Cortez, who has become a big pain in my butt now, but back then I didn't know him, uh, came to interview me. And <clears throat> I can't remember what happened that day, but something was in the news cycle that was particularly frustrating to me because, to me, the occurrence that was in the news cycle, and I really can't remember what had happened that day. It was pretty obvious what had happened and what you should gather from that information. And I watched Fox and CNN and Newsmax and CNBC. And the reporting on this cert certain situation was, uh, frankly, like four different worlds. And I I'm kind of sick of these alternate narratives about anything that happens in the world other than the common sense reality of something that happens in the world that are shaped to divide us. And um, so I had that going on in the back of my mind. And Alex asked me the proverbial, you know, what do you think we need to do to fix what else is? And I said, well, you know, there's neighborhoods all over our country and Memphis and every other city that when you drive by and you look down the road or you look over the viaduct and you see the disenfranchisement and the despair and the loss, um, you think, my gosh, I do not want to have a flat tire here. This is where I don't want my car to break down because I'm going to get mugged. And then as you safely pass by, you peer down those areas and you think to yourself, man, that's terrible down there. Somebody ought to do something about that one day. And you say that as if your sentiment matters and your sentiment isn't anything. It matters nothing. And my suggestion is, we might need to kick that rearview mirror about 15 degrees to the left and think maybe I ought to do something about that one day because government has proven woefully inadequate in caring for the most disadvantaged among us. And the people crafting these narratives that I was speaking about earlier, they're not fixing anything. I would argue, in fact, they're doing a an ex exemplary job dividing us with their narratives. The people in D.C. are doing a great job dividing us with their uh, political scare tactics, and I'm just sick of it. And I think the only thing that's going to fix what ails us is an army of normal folks, just normal people like you and me, who see areas of need in their communities and taking the initiative to fill those areas of need. That's what I said to Alex in this interview. So seven months later, Alex calls me back and he said, I can't quit thinking about what you said in our interview. And I thought, uh-oh, did I cuss? I, I, I'd forgotten what I said. And he he repeated it to me. He said, do you really feel that one? And I said, I absolutely do. And he said, well, I want to start a podcast where we find normal people that nobody knows anything about, not A-listers, not, not bigwig politicians, not people from Hollywood, just normal people doing extraordinary things. And I want you to interview them and tell their stories, and we're going to produce it well and make it entertaining and thought-provoking and redemptive, but more importantly, and maybe most importantly, hopefully inspirational, so that we grow a listenership, a proverbial army of people listening to all these amazing stories of people from all walks of life, from all over our country, doing amazing things and hopefully inspiring others through hearing those stories to get involved themselves in different ways that they can do it and call this thing an army of normal folks. And I said, okay, well, first, what's a podcast? Because <laughs> I'd never listened to podcasts. He told me, and I started listening to him. And I said, okay, we'll do it. And so 
we started interviewing these people and canning them and we had 15 or 20 done before we were going to release and we're only four months old um maybe even three and a half months old we we released recently and uh iron light labs uh out of chicago helps produce it and puts effort behind it and iheart um media uh picked us up and just started to distribute us and we released and we're telling these stories and trying to grow this listenership of this army and you know uh, we've been as high as number 10 in the country on apple and it's resonating and so now i have this other alternate life where i'm this podcast host trying to tell these stories and inspire people to join our army of normal folks to to ultimately do what Alex asked me a year ago, which is fix it. And the proverbial it to me is fixed by normal people seeing areas of need and filling them and us telling those stories to hopefully inspire others to do the same. What are some of the memorable moments or, or episodes that you've had of the podcast so far? What's stuck out to you? Bro, it is so hard to do that because they are all so uniquely amazing um in their own right i'll tell you about today's that we release every tuesday and um very important to understand we interview men women uh white people black people hispanic people asian people um we we interview all walks of life doing all kinds of things from building uh restaurants that charge no money that you pay as you can to a guy who robbed banks and now runs the most successful um re-entry program in the united states in las vegas to uh a guy who cuts yards for free and has inspired ten thousand kids across the country to go cut yards for people who can't physically do it for themselves to a guy named Arshe Cooper from West Side Chicago, who is part of the first black road team, who has now got black road teams all the country. I mean, these stories are all over the place. There, there's everything. But uh, the most recent today's is a lady named Stacy Horst, whose daughter was autistic, and but she was level one high functioning, and due to her autism, she was bullied at school and excluded. Uh, and very, very sad. And she was a sweet kid. She loved animals. She loved to cook. She loved her family. She loved to interact. But because of her level one autism and the inherent uh, social problems that come with autism, she was bullied. She was ostracized. She was never included. And when Aaron was 16, due to that sadness, she took her own life. And Stacy and her husband, Darren, found her in her bedroom. Um, and instead of, uh, I think it's something like one in three marriages end in divorce within two years after the death of, uh, after the suicide, after a child's suicide, because it is so traumatic and there's so much blame and shame and grief. And instead of it ripping their family apart, she started a, an organization, um, that, uh, there are these things called e-clubs where, uh, they're starting these clubs all over the country where kids with social problems and and autism can go and just be around other kids and crave friendships. And and they're they've said that if Aaron had one friend, she'd still be with us today. And so their mission to honor their their daughter's legacy is to never let another kid with autism or another kid with special needs feel so isolated that they don't want to live anymore. And they can have friends and they've started these organizations all over the country and they hope to be as big as boys and girls clubs so that kids like their daughter have a place to go just to make friends. And these are, they both work. They both still have jobs. Nobody tabbed them. Nobody said, you, you know, wonderful story. Here's a bunch of money. Go do it. They saw an area need and because of their love for their daughter, and their heart for other families who have kids like their daughter, and they never wanted to see anybody else go through the pain they went through, they acted. And their passion for their daughter and their ability to organize 
met a place where they saw a need and they're filling it and they're changing lives and even saving lives as a result. Now, nobody knows these people's story, but they do now because it's not an army of normal folks. So not only do we get to tell these stories that nobody hears that are unbelievable and inspirational, but I got to believe that with our listenership and our growing listenership, there's parents out there listening that have kids with autism. They're struggling with the same thing. And now they have someone they can call. They have an illustration, which is the episode of something you can do to make a difference. And each one of our guests give their personal contact information at the end of every show. So not only do you have the illustration or the blueprint of something you can do, but you have the personal contact information of someone who can mentor you on how to start it. And it doesn't matter if you're starting an e-club or you're starting a, a running club for the homeless. And yes, that's an episode. Or you want to get involved with people who are, are returning citizens from jail who are trying to get their life right. Or you want to start, I mean, every story is distinctly, uniquely different. Every story is redemptive, inspirational, entertaining. You will laugh, you will cry, but also each are blueprints with the numbers of people, with the contact information of people who did it to inspire people to get involved. For the normal folks out there, people who are looking for ways that they can get involved in their community, that they can make a difference, that they can do more, what advice would you offer them? Walk across the street and just start. To a person, I haven't had a single guest yet that said they had the first clue what they were doing. <laughs> they just saw an area need and they just went to fill it. There is no playbook. I, I, after Undefeated won the Academy Award and all the speeches in the book and everything, I have lots of interviews. And frankly, you get asked a lot of the same questions over and over again, and you learn how to answer the questions in a succinct way that is also meaningful. The one question I always struggled with was when people would come up and say, I'm so inspired by everything you've done. How do I do it? What do I do? And I get people's fears. I get people's inhibitions. I get people's reticence. That people have good hearts and they want to have ways that they can involve themselves in community and help. But I also get people's reticence to it. And I never really had a good answer for that. But you know what I do now? Listen to an army of normal folks because you're going to hear every single week amazing stories of ways to get involved. And you're going to have blueprints and you're going to have people in this community, this army that you can literally talk to and call on that will help you through the steps that they and the missteps that they've taken so that you can be involved. And so what advice I have is I know it sounds self-serving, but I really do mean it in a in a in a legitimate way. Listen to an army of normal folks. Listen, you'll hear all of the options, but deeper than that is. Have the temerity to be um, vulnerable. Have the guts to get out of your comfort zone, get out of your vacuum of thought, and cross the street to a place you've never gone and say, how can I help? Find a place that you have a discipline and a passion and put it to work where there is opportunity. And what I mean by that is, all of us have something we do in our lives that we're good at. Photography, art, football, music, whatever. If that's your discipline that you're passionate about, implement that passion and that discipline in a place of opportunity. And there's places of opportunity all over our world. And you don't have to start a massive organization to make a difference. You can serve two or three people in your community and make a difference. So don't be... Don't be, don't be awed of the job or the task. Just try. And uh, the payoff is you'll get a thousand times more out of it than you put into it. Bill Courtney is the host of An Army of Normal Folks, available from iHeart Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today on Act in Line. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. 
It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at actin.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Eric Cohn.